And I look at the screen and it's, it says um, the Taliban have just um, entered Kabul. And my heart sank. It felt devastating in a way like it's happening in the in the next room, not like it was happening thousands and thousands of miles away. I think the most important thing right now is to make sure that our governments don't forget Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Trouble with the Truth, a podcast about journalists in danger and the stories that get them in trouble. I'm your host, Lana Istimirova. So you don't think this could have been handled, this actually could have been handled? I don't know how that happens. When U.S. President Joe Biden announced that U.S. troops would withdraw from Afghanistan by August 31st, it was a race against time. Having survived through Taliban rule in the 1990s, Afghans couldn't afford to wait for what would happen once the last American soldier left the country. Thousands of people who worked with Western armies and institutions frantically rushed to the exit, appealing to colleagues on the outside, applying for visas and flocking to the airports. Among them were many reporters and stringers who worked in partnership with their Western counterparts for decades. My guest today is Sonia Winterberg, journalist, director and writer who has been working in Afghanistan for many years. She's striving to support friends and colleagues left behind and those who managed to escape. We spoke about those painful few weeks of the evacuation, whether this new Taliban regime is any different from the first iteration and how we must not turn our attention away from Afghanistan. Well, it's been uh, just extraordinary few weeks, really. We've all been anxiously waiting for that 31st of August deadline set by the President Joe Biden, which was the official deadline for the evacuation of anyone, any Afghan citizens and, um, well, other citizens affiliated with the, um, with the Western powers. Um, and you've been actually heavily involved in this. It must have been a really stressful time. Um, I mean, can you just walk me through that moment when you found out that you would literally have a few weeks to evacuate anyone that you know from Afghanistan? So for me, it's... Um, so I've worked or I've been to Afghanistan several times since 2002. And um, as many journalists who have worked in Afghanistan, you have local contacts, you have, uh, you have friends, you've established friendships over time. And, um, and on, I remember distinctly on August 15th, it was a Sunday, I was in a, um, in a recording studio in Stuttgart, Germany, um, recording a radio show. Um, I was there for an interview and, um, and you have the ticker, you know, the live ticker that tells you like there's a, there's a traffic jam somewhere and these are the news and, and, um, and the, the moderator asked me or the presenter asked me a question and I look at the screen and it's, it says um, the Taliban have just um, entered Kabul and my heart sank. Um, I had friends who had um, already ahead of the, the, uh, the withdrawal of the American troops had um, decided to leave the country and I knew that um, time was of the essence. It was just a matter of the time of like, how would they get out? Would they have all the papers? Which organizations would, would take them, you know? So um, I guess any time after that has just been a blur. You know, it's been just like going every day, either I get an email or I have friends who call me or I'm, I'm talking to, uh, to people either in Germany, I'm based in Canada, so I, I mm -hmm. talk to organizations in different countries. Um, 
And, um, and I must say what really was most disheartening for me was the German uh, reporters without borders. They had initially listed about 70 journalists they wanted to get out later on. It was, I think now it's about 170. Um, and in the initial um, phase in August, they were able, I think, to get out one, one of on the one person on this list. That's and, just uh, devastating. It, it is devastating. And I mean, it's so I talked to, um, to um, a newswire, um, I'll try not to use the names because I don't want to sort of uh, endanger the families who are still there. Of course. He was the, the office manager for one of the newswire services in Kabul, and he is out of Afghanistan now. He is in Iran. Um, and I talked with him yesterday, and he said, um, as far as he knows, 90% of the journalists who worked with Western uh, companies or powers or, or armies, they have left Afghanistan. There's only about 10% of those left. Um, many of them have chosen to stay on. Um, by the same token, um, many of them have left themselves, but they either had to leave their their immediate family behind, um, or they have uh, have extended family relatives who are still in the country. So, um, as you can imagine, it's just um, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's for anybody. It's heartbreaking who is not um, a, a able to leave a country out of their own free will. And it's equally heartbreaking that after 20 years of involvement of, uh, of the West, that um, an Afghan passport doesn't really have any value for you to go anywhere. You're always seen as the, the refugee, as the migrant who, um, who is not really welcome. So I think that really is for me the essence now that we have failed Afghanistan miserably. Um, and it's just, it's beyond anything I could have imagined. Um, I think what really struck me as I was following closely the events is just how the whole world was watching. And in a very strange, perverse way, I think it kind of brought us together because I think during the um, Iraq invasion or Afghan invasion, or whenever we talk about the other, there is almost just this way of looking at people from all those other countries, brown people, let's say, as, you know, as like, like they're different species. And I think there it has been a part of part of this kind of maybe some kind of neo-imperialist narrative. And what I found um, when I was just looking at testimonies from the Afghan people themselves who spoke in perfect English, or even if they, you know, you know, they didn't, they're just people recording their own messages. And I, and I really felt like that's what made it seem so real in our age of social media that um, people were just using their own voice to talk about what was happening to them. And that's why it felt devastating in a way like it's happening in the, in the next room, not like it was happening thousands and thousands of miles away. Um, They're not intermediary anymore. We hear them directly. We hear them, we see them. We see them running towards the plane, you know, when the plane was leaving um, uh, one of the last planes of the Americans. So it's, um, as you said, yeah, it is devastating and we have, it's very immediate and it makes mm -hmm. you really like you're almost like you're there. Um, still, it's, um, I think we've never been further away from, from the Afghans than now. Yeah. And, and even um, those colleagues and Western colleagues who are um, in Kabul right now, um, it's, it's one world in, in Kabul, you know, where, where a lot of the, um, 
the world is watching. And then it's a different story if you get out into the provinces. And um, and we've had bad news from the provinces. We had um, many journalists um, on the on the ground have been beaten up, have had sort of uh, the families threatened. Um, yeah, it's. I feel like many. I think at the moment we feel very powerless, mm-hmm. even those that that we know that we have been able to get out of Afghanistan. I have a colleague who is uh, currently in Islamabad, who is in, in Pakistan um, with 10 members of his family, um, all children under 18, he and his wife. Um, and they literally have nowhere to go, although they had an American employer all these years, you know, so mm-hmm. that is. And in some ways, um, the new Taliban government are trying to present themselves as some sort of Taliban 2.0, um, saying that, um, that there's not going to be the repetition of the 90s, although, well, I'm not surprised that ordinary Afghan citizens don't believe that. Um, well, there was even this example of this uh, journalist, uh, female journalist, who interviewed one of the Afghan uh, speakers, uh, official speakers, Behesta Argand, a young journalist, very brave, who just was firing off the questions um, without any fear. And that was kind of taken up as, hey, look, there's a female journalist interviewing a Taliban representative. We've changed. They've changed. And now I learned that she actually had to flee. She was threatened and uh, she had to relocate to Qatar with the help of uh, Malala Yousafzai. So... How how you uh, because you've been working in Afghanistan for a while. Um, how do you think this version of Taliban is different from a previous one, and do you think it's it's different at all? I think there is a difference. I think there's a difference. I mean, they have learned. They they're using uh, modern communication now. They're. Um, I think one of the spokespeople these days said that um, using social media has changed their way of being able to communicate to the world instead of uh, communicating to hundreds of people, hundreds of people in a, um, in a, in a closed context, they can now, um, yeah, broadcast to hundreds of millions, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're any different in terms of their application of the law and the, in, in the, uh, I mean, you know, I really sort of, uh, I'm, I'm, respectful of, of Islam, of, of the Muslims in um, they absolutely need to be needs to be more respect um, towards their faith. Um, that's out of the question. By the same token, um, we have um, Muslim countries who are respecting the human rights. Um, They're part of the UN, you know, and I think Afghanistan is very far from from getting back into that international group of Muslim states who, who are well respected. And um, we just had the interview AP, Kathy Gannon for the AP did an interview um, with one of the clerical leaders of the Taliban who said they would bring back, you know, beheadings and, um, and cutting off of hands and, and, and feet. Um, and, and their 2.0 version is just that they will not do it in public maybe anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, which does not um, take away the cruelty as such. And um, I think that from what I hear from, from colleagues on the ground, um, one thing that has really changed um, almost immediately because of fear of the um, general public is uh, crime. Crime has gone down um, tremendously. I think that there was a problem with both corruption and crime um, under the previous government and um, really in recent years. 
Um, but we have to look at the whole picture. And again, here we have a country that has been bled out. You know, they're, they're, the, the population has grown tremendously and there has been basically no industry. There is no money um, making industry in the country. Um, there, there has been no way of, uh, of getting jobs to Afghanistan. And, um, and it's, it's interesting that both China and Russia are now um, basically stepping in and, mm -hmm. and sort of looking at how can they um, yeah, fill the void essentially in, in this whole um, era of, uh, yeah, of chaos of turmoil. It's really difficult to make any predictions, and um, and I think yeah, the straight away what what I noticed immediately is the reports coming from journalists and especially from female journalists saying how they're not allowed to go back to work, how they're receiving threats. Many of them are in hiding at the moment, and how girls are not allowed to go to school. And well, the Taliban is saying that it's temporarily and that they're going to have segregated education. But I find it very hard to believe, of course. So 2.0, not so much, it seems. It seems like it's very same old. Um, and speaking of, about the journalists who uh, managed to flee or who were evacuated, that's a whole separate topic because maybe it seems like it's some kind of a happy ending, a child skipping uh, skipping in the airport towards the big bright future, but with the kind of hostile environment that, that many, even Western countries are experiencing when it comes to immigrants and refugees, um, well, the, the future doesn't always look so bright. I mean, you've probably, I, are you in contact with many journalists who are already been relocated? A number of them, yeah. I, mm -hmm. um, so. I think that I would like sort of like to, to maybe go back a little bit in time. So um, the first years when I came to Afghanistan, um, young people, um, many of them not yet journalists, but either in training or at, uh, at in institutions of higher learning, um, they learned English, they became translators, they became stringers, they helped us sort of um, report on stories. Um, and um, I, had a, I had a really nice stringer in uh, 2005 in, um, in Kabul who, um, who had been a child soldier. He had been a child soldier for the Mujahideen from the age of 12. Um, he had never seen a school from the inside. He had uh, literally learned English all by himself. And, um, and so uh, for, for four or five years, he, he worked extremely hard um, to, to get himself in a position to, um, to learn. He was eager to learn and to, to yeah, anything, any knowledge, if, if it was music, if it was literature, everything was really something that he just, he took in. And, um, and he managed to, um, to get a scholarship for um, a university. And here's somebody who, he, who had not been to school, you know, before, he didn't have a training. And so he, he managed to get his, um, I got a scholarship to the U.S. to a college and um, and got his degree there and um, and he's still in the U.S. and has um, has become a become a permanent resident there, and um, and that is one of the the stories and I think that we have several of those who are young Afghans who left Afghanistan in the early years um, once they had made contact with Americans um, or Western Europeans. Um, um, who had uh, trained and who had um, learned a foreign language. Um, 
And that was very different from the generation that had left now. And, um, and many of those have worked in the country as journalists um, for anywhere between 10 and 20 years. And, um, and they have been used to be in close contact with the West. Sometimes they have traveled to neighboring countries, but almost none of them has been to Europe or to the US. And, um, and why is that important? I think that we underestimate the, um, the future that these people will have, these colleagues will have. Um, they might get um, support from, you know, journalist organizations in different countries at the moment. They might be able to resettle, which is great because they will have a better future. Their children may be able to go to school, etc. Um, will they ever be able to go back to work as a journalist? Probably not. I think that's why um, I started off being a little bit pessimistic because I've been doing this podcast for about a year now and journalism in, in exile is just becoming a thing of its own. And we'll, we now have a, just a, ma a large group of Russian journalists in uh, in Georgia and in Ukraine is becoming kind of like a Paris in the in the 1920s. Um, we have a massive numbers of uh, mass numbers of uh, Turkish journalists who've been in exile for about a decade now because of uh, Erdogan's uh, repressions. It's possible to carry on some kind of journalism abroad, and I'm sure that it'll continue in in different forms. But it's it's hard to say whether all of the journalists will be able to continue their work because it's a completely different country, it's a different language and it's a different setting, especially when you don't have that access, that direct access to your homeland anymore. Exactly. And I think that is um, what worries me most. I think for the younger generation, they're still adaptable. I think if you're in your mm -hmm. early 20s, there is still um, more hope for, for them. But I think for the colleagues 40 plus, Mm -hmm. um, that are especially in, in broadcasting and or a, a written journalism, it will be really tough. And, um, and also, I mean, we have, we talk about journalists now, but as you said earlier, it's also about the human rights activists. Mm -hmm. Many of women, um, women journalists, they, they sometimes have a double occupancy. They, they work as journalists, they, they write or they broadcast or they have a podcast or something. And they, um, they try to champion human rights, girls' rights, you know, the right for education. And um, yeah, those, of, um, those women really have a tough time to, to be able to continue their work. One of my closest um, Afghan female friends um, is an architect um, who has been, um, who's always, I've known her for almost 20 years and she, um, she lives in um, Islamabad at the moment, and she had left Afghanistan a little earlier than um, than the Americans had um, had uh, said when they would get out. And uh, and one of the things she said, she said, you know, I never wanted to get married just for that reason. I knew that once I would get married, I would not be able to make my own decisions, and uh, and I would have a family that I would have to consider, and the husband would be the one person who would make those decisions for me, and I didn't want that. And it was very tough for her parents to accept that, but they're separated at the moment. So she is in Islamabad, the parents are back in Kabul. Um, and it's just, uh, it, it's really hard to even, um, you know, give any advice, you know? I mean, I what I usually do, so I have, uh, even yesterday I received a call from a colleague um, who who is um, in, a, in a neighboring country at the moment. And, and he said, you know, where do I go? Should I go to the UK? Should I 
try to get to the US and I said, you know, let's try to get you on as many lists as possible because every, every um, way out is just a trial, trial and error. And um, while one country may, may be able to take you in, another will say no way, you know. And, and that makes it so difficult as well because you would think that, for example, if you had an American employer um, for a long time, that, that this would be their, their employee who they would try to support and get into their country. And, and that's not happening. And that, that is really disheartening. And then sort of you try to do that with Reporters Without Borders, um, with uh, the International uh, Rescue Committee in the US, um, with the um, International Committee of the Red Cross. There are these organizations um, who we contact and who we pass names on and, and try to um, pass on supporting material. But it's, it always feels like it's not enough. You know, and um, and here we sit, basically just um, not being able to do more to really support these people who have um, broken stories, who've been giving us access and contact and translated and um, and written really good uh, articles themselves. You know, so so that is uh, it is very frustrating. And do you think that there'll be any other routes of evacuating people in a different way or? assisting them somehow? There's not much flight traffic at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. I have a colleague who said yesterday they saw three planes, um, one of which they weren't sure if it was landing, a C-17, which looked like it was from Qatar. Um, I think that we underestimate the, um, or we overestimate the, the, the um, modes of transportation at the moment. Mm -hmm. The ins and outs of Kabul are, are very closed. And um, I have a colleague who just came in through um, Uzbekistan, who traveled by car from the northern border, from Masar Sharif all the way down to Kabul. Um, it's not easy to get in, it's not easy to get out. Um, then we have uh, third countries like Tajikistan, who is still holding um, Afghan pilots, fighter pilots from the, um, from the Air Force. Um, there's two separate groups. One um, is held in the mountains um, and one is held in uh, Dutan Bay. Um, and the American embassy is trying to get their biometrics to be able to issue visas and, and send them to the U.S. But it looks like, um, again, we're in Tajikistan, you, you know, it's a, it's a very repressive country. They try to um, use these pilots who have escaped to, to their country. Um, to use them as bargaining chips, you know, um, with the West. And so I think the international, um, you know, we have the UN, um, uh, uh, the gathering of the UN, the full gathering of the UN in New York right now. And there is not much coming out of that, you know. So we have the Taliban who would like to speak. Um, and, uh, and, and we have bilateral meetings, but I don't hear anything um, substantial, like change it, that the world community would say, okay, let's go this way and let's try this road. And it's just not, um, not very practical in many ways. To, and do you think, to um, do you think eventually it will be necessary for the West to establish some form of a dialogue with Taliban if... Well, what would be the alternative? Yeah, exactly. Oh, so there is, I, I think that China, um, who welcomed the Taliban um, uh, in June, I think, um, has uh, is already in there. The um, as we talked earlier, the Russians are mm -hmm. in close contact. 
So I think there is no alternative um, but talking with the Taliban. Um, I think by the same token, we need to establish the rules of engagement. You know, what are the rules? What is uh, sort of, uh, we have a, a population that is impoverished. You know, people they need, they need food aid. You know, it will be, um, it will be a harsh winter. Um, how is the West gonna sort of uh, look at that? I mean, we have to help. I mean, there is no, in, in my view, there is no alternative. But um, it will be very difficult to establish these rules and every chance that we had over the past 20 years has been lost. That's, I never thought that this conversation would be easy. Um, but the question that I always have in mind, I guess, as a practical person is, what can we do? What, what can we do to help as citizens, um, as NGO workers, as journalists? How, how can we help? I think the most important thing right now is to make sure that our governments don't forget Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So it's really about um, talking with our governments, you know, in every possible way, be it through NGOs, be it through sort of our MPs, really saying, you know, please get in there, please get involved, please don't forget about them. Set up programs for, for um, Afghan refugees in your countries. Um, it's just a matter of really not forgetting, you know, it's like it, at the moment, um, personally, I think that sort of after um, August, when, when the Americans um, withdrew, it started that we were putting Afghan on the back burner in the media again. And, um, and this will, I mean, unless we have sort of uh, things like, you know, beheadings or, or cruelty or really sort of uh, the, the things that sort of are, are on top of the news cycle, um, it will not happen. And so I think that is the most important thing for us, really talking with our foreign offices, with the government, that we cannot let this happen and sort of, uh, yeah, talk with the Taliban, try to get in there, establish terms, try to support those that are in your country. And also, I think on a personal um, note, in every country, I've been, I've lived in, in different countries in my life, and in every country there is refugees, and there is, uh, and the same with Afghans, and um, and it really is a matter of you know you don't have to help the entire world, but but you know try and reach out to the, the local mosque, to organizations in your neighborhood, and and maybe welcome one person, you know, invite them to your home, invite them for coffee, try to get to know them. Um, there's it's it's many small steps that really help people to integrate into a new culture. And I think that um, just being placid and not sort of doing anything just uh, makes us complicit in, in the whole situation. Very well said, Sonia. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. And I'm glad that we managed to come up with something at the end, some, some advice that people can follow if they want to alleviate the suffering of Afghan people or just extend a helping hand. I think it's very important. Thank you so much for this. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>